When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. I know that for a while, with the pandemic, we were all kind of in Bill Murray's perpetual Groundhog Day movie. And we stopped, in many respects, knowing what day it really was. We can all agree on one thing, that we are both old enough and young enough to remember when Trump and Pence were on the same side. After all, they were running on the same ticket for re-election, asking for yet another four years in the White House together just 18 months ago. And then they lost. But when only one was prepared to acknowledge that, it seems... Well, that there's no love that has now been lost between them. In talking January 6th, Pence once said he didn't think he and Trump would ever see eye to eye about that day, intimating that it was time to move beyond the 2020 election. Today, Pence has solidified that disconnect, stumping for Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a candidate who has wholly rejected Trump's big lie, at least as a campaign platform winning strategy. I am here to support Brian Kemp in tomorrow's Republican primary. I can honestly say I was for Brian Kemp before it was cool. When you say yes to Governor Brian Kemp tomorrow, you will send a deafening message all across America that the Republican Party is the party of the future. And with that... Trump's former vice president just may have made the biggest and boldest break yet from the man that is still mad that he certified the election for Biden. Now, we already knew that Trump was angry with Brian Kemp. I mean, he's been actively working to oust him from office ever since and calling him a turncoat, calling him a coward and a complete disaster. Remember, he even enlisted former Senator David Perdue to run against him in the gubernatorial primary. Now, Governor Kemp has said today that, look, the bad blood, it doesn't go both ways. I had a great relationship with President Trump. I've never said anything bad about him. I don't plan on uh, doing that. I'm not mad at him. I think he's just mad at me. And that's something that I can't control. The question is how all this is playing with Republican voters in Georgia and possibly beyond. I mean, despite Trump's backing, Purdue who has campaigned on the big lie, he's struggled to gain traction in the polls. He's been trailing Kemp by a wide margin in these final hours, in spite of Trump's tele-rally for Purdue even tonight. He's making a last-ditch effort to turn out his MAGA voters while taking, frankly, yet another dig at Kemp. Brian Kemp is truly a embarrassment to the Republican Party because of what's taken place in your great state, Georgia. And David will make a massive upgrade as your governor. And as for whether Georgia Republicans are Team Trump or Team Punts when it punts, Pence when it comes to endorsements, excuse me, anything can happen, of course. There could be a runoff if Kemp doesn't win more than 50% of the vote. But as of now, it seems, at least in the primary, it's Kemp's race to lose. But you know what's not happening? I doubt we'll be seeing another Trump-Pence ticket anytime soon, if ever. 
well, not after Trump's spokesperson, said this today. Quote, Mike Pence was set to lose a governor's race in 2016 before he was plucked up and his political career was salvaged. Now, desperate to chase his lost relevance, Pence is parachuting into races, hoping someone is paying attention. Remember, this was once his one-time closest political partner he's talking about. But the question now is, is this Pence attempting to maybe be on the top of a ticket in 2024? I want to bring in our power political team for their take. Former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who co-chaired Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign, and Scott Jennings, former advisor, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. I'm glad to have you both here, especially on the eve of election night in America, as we know it so well. Let me start with you, Scott, on this, because did it surprise you that the former vice president has essentially extended that 10-foot pole and said, look, I'm for Kemp even before it was cool? No, I'm not surprised at Mike Pence's engagement here because in a lot of ways, what Brian Kemp is is doing in Georgia is blazing the trail that Mike Pence himself wants to go down in 2024. You have two politicians here that at least in some ways owe their national political prominence to Donald Trump. You know, Kemp uh, came to power during the Trump years and was endorsed by Donald Trump. Pence obviously joined the Trump ticket. But both of them broke with Donald Trump after the 2020 election. So if Brian Kemp can pull this off in Georgia and be authentic and be conservative and be that kind of a Republican and win a primary and then beat the Stacey Abrams team in November, that is exactly the argument Mike Pence is going to try to make to national Republicans all over the country in 2024. So it makes a lot of sense for Pence to be there. And honestly, if Kemp pulls this off, that's exactly the blueprint uh, that people like Mike Pence are going to need to follow if they want to challenge Trump in the next presidential election. You know what I find interesting, Nina? The idea that Brian Kemp is not focusing on sort of the rehashing of a former election, and it seems to be working for him, at least compared to Purdue. And then on the other side, he his maybe eventual uh, opponent who is not running a contested race, Stacey Abrams, well, she's been quite focused on the fact that she believes that there was, you know, not on the up and up when it came to her gubernatorial run. And so you have this sort of tension going on in Georgia, the idea of, yeah, you want to lead things in the past, but not towards saying, but we remember what happened here. What do you think is going to be more effective when you're talking about for the Republicans or Democrats, the distancing for Republicans or acknowledging what happened if you're a proponent of Stacey Abrams from several years ago? I think on the Abrams side, Lord, they can do both, both acknowledge the transgressions that happened the last time around and focus on moving forward. You have to be able to do both because you need to remind voters what happened before and what could possibly happen again. You know, I look at Georgia, and of course, we've all been looking at Georgia for so many reasons, um, not the least of which is how, although Kemp is now campaigning, distancing from the big lie, Georgia has codified, as you well know, Scott, portions of the thoughts behind the big lie. It was a very controversial Election Integrity Act that was initiated, implemented, speaking of blueprints. And now you've got the same token here of, well, you're hearing about voter turnout being very high, at least in the early voting stages, upwards of 800,000 or more. A comparison, in fact, from looking at how this has gone before in um, prior primaries. What do you make of the idea that the voter turnout has been high in spite of it? At least Stacey Abrams has had this to say. I want you to react to this in terms of thinking about the why, why there is higher voter turnout still even in spite of these election integrity um, type legislation. Here's what she had to say about why it's a fallacy. 
the moral equivalent of saying that voter turnout diffuses or disproves voter suppression is like saying that more people getting in the water means there are no longer any sharks. Those two things are just not true. And we know that voter suppression is alive and well in Georgia, and we're going to continue to fight back. What do you make of that, Scott, in terms of um, the fact that she's pointing out the idea, look, you can't very well say because people are turning out that there were not things that were going wrong in legislation. What's your retort? Well, I mean, the numbers, the, the data, I mean, what's happening on the ground? You have people voting in droves in both parties. To my knowledge, no one is dying of thirst, which was the main promise uh, that people were going to not be able to get water. That's a lie. I'm reading account after account of people who are saying, well, wow, on, I had no idea hold how easy you, it wait, was to one vote. Thing, excuse me. You, you laugh about that point, but that was one of the controversial aspects. Of, this is early voting we're talking about, people before having to stand in line. And so that point, I get why that's controversial and why there's a little bit of humor that you're trying to display. But in terms of the actual notion of, of why people turned out, do you really think that they turned out because um, in spite of or because of the legislation? I think I don't think the legislation is causing people to turn out or not to turn out. The issue with the legislation, we spent months and months and months hearing that people were going to be suppressed, people were going to be kept from the polls, people were going to be turned away, and it was all a huge lie. This this law has made it easy for people to vote in both parties. You have Republicans and Democrats turning out in droves. And by the way, I suspect we're going to have really high turnout in November as well. So Everybody who wanted the law, Brian Kemp included, have been proven right. And everybody who said it was a disaster have been proven wrong. Nina, what's your reaction to that? Is it all a lie that suppression doesn't exist as the big boogeyman? No, it's not a lie. And, and voters are turning out in spite of. I mean, just because people are turning out to vote does not mean that the hurdle was not higher, especially and we know that the law deals primarily with the absentee voting portion of it, but making it harder, making it more stringent to do so. So people are out voting uh, more in person, and that is absolutely a good thing. We know that we had the scourge of COVID. Well, we still have it, but in the heat of the 2020 elections, a lot of states were doing what was necessary to expand and protect access to the ballot box, knowing that people had to vote. Uh, it was life or death to vote uh, absentee uh, and, and be able to mail in a ballot. So any elected officials, anybody that runs for office for a living should all want to make sure that we make it easier, that we expand it, that we protect it and stop leaning on the fallacy somehow that they're this large scourge of people trying to impersonate somebody. I mean, what do you get? I mean, I don't understand if somebody trying to rob a bank. We know if they're successful, they get the money. But most people are not going to go into a polling place or turn in an absentee ballot application trying to impersonate somebody else. That is the big lie that the Republicans continue to push. And state after state, including my great state of Ohio, we have less voting opportunities than we had 10 years ago because the Republicans continue to strip, strip, strip away. And wow. that is not the right thing to do. So I'm glad to see the voters in Georgia pushing forward anyway. Well, you know, whether it's in spite of or because, it's kind of the big political question on all fronts. Why do people show up? Is it because they're voting in favor or against something? We'll have to follow up what's happening tomorrow. Nina Turner, Scott Jennings, we shall see. I want to go to a neighbor of the great state of Ohio, though. And nearly a week since the GOP Senate primary in Pennsylvania, that race is still too close to call. In fact, right now, Dr. Mehmet Oz leads moderate Dave McCormick by just under 1,000 votes making it all but certain that this race is, in fact, going to head to a recount. And this comes, of course, as, interestingly enough, McCormick's campaign has filed a lawsuit this evening to have 
undated ballots be a part of the count? Well, Michael Smirkana, she knows all in Pennsylvania politics. Thank you for joining me tonight. Michael, I have to ask you about this because the idea of him trying to say, let's count the undated ballots, what is the significance? People understand that right now. Why is that such an important point, just given how we've seen the last year or two? So, Laura, welcome to Groundhog Day in Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's another day, another day of counting ballots. The margin gets slightly more narrow between Oz and McCormick, but still it's McCormick who trails, as you pointed out, by close to 1,000 votes. The answer to your question is that Dave McCormick has outperformed Dr. Oz among the write-in ballots and the absentee ballots. And so his perspective, McCormick, is one of count anything that was not cast on election day because chances are I'll fare better than will Dr. Oz. Oz, you will not be surprised to hear. And with the support of Rona McDaniel from the RNC, says, no, if they're, if they're lacking a date on the ballot, it shouldn't be cast. It shouldn't be counted. I should point this out. We are talking about ballots that came in by election day. So this is okay. not an issue of were they received on time. There's a state law requirement that says you've got to write down the date that you actually filled out your ballot a federal court decision last Friday from the Third Circuit in an unrelated case said even if you lack a date, it ought to be counted. So McCormick is pointing to that decision and saying that ought to be the standard. So it's interesting because, of course, um, the former president, Donald Trump, was really saying, look, declare that you're the victor, Oz, before any of this happens. Sort of an eye towards thinking if votes are coming in, they may chop away at the margin that you have. And so you got to do it for the recount sake to avoid it. Is there any way you see this actually avoiding a recount at this point? And by the way, if this does go to a recount, which we think it's going to go to a recount, um, are there any special precautions or guardrails that are unique to Pennsylvania that makes this out of the ordinary? Well, former President Trump, of course, remembers the, you know, the red mirage and the blue wave, how he looked strong on Tuesday night, at least to the uninitiated who weren't aware of, of just what potency those mail-in ballots would hold for Democrats. And it was by the following Saturday that Joe Biden eclipsed him, was declared the winner in Pennsylvania, and that's what put him over the top. So, you know, Trump probably looks at Oz, whom he supported, and thinks, this is deja vu, get out ahead of it. Uh, my hunch is that Dr. Oz is probably somewhat confident, nervous, but somewhat confident that he's got enough built in so that even if there's a recount, and there will be, it may get chipped away, but probably not enough to overturn it. So that's probably where we're headed. But frankly, you know, it's been such a bizarre election, Laura. Who the hell knows where it ends up? Well, to use your analogy and extend it, I guess Punxsutawney Phil is seeing the shadow of Donald Trump. We'll just put it that way and see what actually happens there. <laughs> Michael, don't go far. See, I know Bill Murray movies. See, what about Bob is one of the all-time classics. Anyway, Michael, don't go far. I want to talk to you about this new lawsuit against Bill Cosby by a female accuser. We're going to do that later this hour. But up next, everyone, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation lawsuit could actually go to the jury soon. The question is, why is Amber Heard's legal team apparently changing its mind about calling Depp to the stand, which I think is a little odd in the first instance to call him. But I wonder what insight could Kate Moss offer in court decades after they have dated. All of this when CNN returns.
I just see my little sister with her back on, face, her back to the staircase, and Johnny swings at her, and I don't even wait, don't even wait in my head, instantly think of Kate Moss and the stairs, and I swung at him. Well, that's actress Amber Heard admitting to swinging at her then-husband, Johnny Depp. She claims it was to protect her sister and that she felt an impulse to do so. Because of that rumor that you may have seen the fist bumping, a rumor she heard about Depp shoving former girlfriend Kate Moss down a staircase. Now, whether or not that happened, we may learn that on Wednesday when Kate Moss is taking the stand expectedly in Depp's $50 million defamation case. I want to bring in attorney Ken Turkel, who specializes in celebrity defamation cases. Ken, I know that you saw what I saw just now. I know as lawyers, we're almost taught, or maybe if, you don't, if you're not taught, you're going to realize pretty quickly when that jury returns a verdict you don't want to not show a whole lot of emotion when you're at that t- counsel table because you never know how it's going to be read. And so you saw the defense attorney sort of pumping his fist at the mere mention of Kate Moss. Here it is. What do you think was behind that? It was the idea, look at his, he's excited. What's behind that? I think it's because someone opened a door. What do you think? Yeah, it was, you know, obviously on that side of it, either through a deposition or anecdotally somewhere, maybe they were waiting for it, but obviously they saw a door being opened, kind of an over-the-top celebration in some respects for what's a somewhat ancillary fact. In other words, it's an undisclosed mental impression. You know, maybe Amber Heard actually did believe the rumor uh, about that, but whatever the case may be, uh, the machinery, I think, would have to have gone into place at that point to arrange for her to come testify to disavow the jury that there was any real uh, incident between Kate Moss and uh, uh, Johnny Depp. So um, that show of celebration, though, there's been a lot of that nonverbal conduct at both counsel tables that sort of um, you, you sort of strive to not do that. Juries are looking at everything. Uh, and we talk a lot before trial about not showing emotion one way or the other in those situations. And of course, so this can be hard. At, at times, you're pretty invested in it. And obviously, there is some level of theatrics. You know, the old sto- saying goes, whoever tells the best story is going to win. You know, in, in some instances, the truth should prevail at all times, of course. But I have to ask you, when you hear about, say, a Kate Moss testifying, or we've heard about Ellen Barkin last week testifying, an actress, you know, a, a part of me wonders in terms of how and why there has been a decision to have this prior testimony of either uncharged prior bad acts, they call it in the law, or the idea of opening up a door. Walk us through a little bit for the audience to understand why you'd have the opportunity to call these sort of either character witnesses to help or to hurt Johnny Depp's case. Yeah, I think the focus is these aren't character witnesses in the truest sense because they're talking about significant uh, or specific instances of conduct and evidence codes, whether they're in a codified actual code or it's common law, case law, generally are are very um, weighted against the idea that we're going to say somebody did something in the past, therefore they did the same thing this time. Mm. Specific instances to prove character. Um, I did a flyby of Virginia's evidence rules, though, and um, I think their corollary to Rule 608 in most states or federally, which includes some of that, is actually it's a little broader. There's a few menu items there that show up and provide a little more latitude. But 
I think the Kate Moss thing is somewhat different than the Ellen Barkin thing because sure. the Ellen Barkin thing was a wholesale. Let's bring in something from the past and say this happened in the past, so it must have happened now. Whereas the so, Kate Moss thing is really a credibility attack. So what do you make of the decision? I mean, at one point, Amber Heard's team, which might surprise people, Amber Heard's team was thinking about calling not somebody in his past, but Johnny Depp himself to testify. Now, I think that's now changed. They're not going to do that any longer. But what was the sort of the method to the madness of calling or considering calling Johnny Depp if you're Amber Heard? Yeah, I, I heard your uh, your lead into it that um, I, that it's not something. I think it's it's very much a lawyer preference thing. I when you're putting on your case in chief, you want to control the flow, presentation of evidence, right? That's your chance to control your witnesses under direct and to put your story together. Calling the other side behind your lines puts you in the position of having to control them through cross examination, which obviously good lawyers can do, and it's not like it's unheard of. But generally, Laura, when that happens, it's on a very sort of technical point or maybe something you need to prove for your case in chief because they already took their shot at them on cross. Right. I don't like to do it, particularly in the video depot age where you can put the video depot on to get those technical points in. So I, they may have just done a risk benefit balance to it. I think it's always risky, yeah. no matter how good yeah. you are controlling that witness. Well, Ken, I mean, it also gives an opportunity to talk about second bite at the apple You've got an actor who's able to now clean up whatever he needs to or talk about or expand upon or undermine in some way. This trial continues. Ken Turkle, Turkel, excuse me, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And from no one sort of celebrity trial to, well, Bill Cosby. Remember Bill Cosby? Well, he may be a free man since Pennsylvania's highest court overturned his sexual assault conviction, but his legal troubles are not over. In fact, it's far from that. You know, there's actually a new trial that is starting for him this week. We'll tell you why and what Cosby could face this time next. So listen to this. After being released from prison last year, Bill Cosby is headed back to a trial for sexual assault accusations. And this time, it's not a criminal case, it's a civil case. You have an accuser named Judy Huff who says Cosby forced her to perform a sex act on him when she was only 16 years old. Now, she claims that it happened at the Playboy Mansion back in the 70s. Now, Cosby has denied these allegations. Back with me now is CNN's Michael Smirconish. He's one of the last people to interview Cosby on the radio before his 2018 trial. Also joining me is CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson. I'm glad to have you both here right now. Michael, let me just start with you here because I want you to help orient this conversation in the sense that people are wondering still, why was he released from prison? It came down to due process, right? And the idea of a former prosecutor making certain guarantees. What happened? Right. So the, the Montgomery County prosecutor at the time, Bruce Castor, who, by the way, good trivia, Laura, would later represent Donald Trump in the impeachment trial in front of the United States Senate, uh, he said to Bill Cosby that he would not be prosecuting him criminally. Castor's story was that he didn't think he could meet his burden and that he, Castor, wanted to help Andrea Konstat in civil litigation and remove the opportunity for Cosby to plead the fifth. By the way, Konstat and, and her team, you know, they dispute all of this. I need to make that clear. But what ended up happening is that Castor didn't prosecute. 
a subsequent DA did. Constat was successful for more than $3 million in her civil suit. And years later, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania said, hey, Cosby should never have been prosecuted to begin with because the DA committed that he wouldn't bring the case. And of course, then the other prosecutors subsequently should have been bound by that that, that very notion. But Joey, the next question, of course, for people is, okay, if that's the case for Bill Cosby as to why we're here now or why he's out of prison now and able to be prosecuted civilly at this point in time, how is it that we're able to hear about a case from the 1970s? Talk to me about the absence of a statute of limitations period, because this is kind of a, a newer phenomenon in the law, the ability to bring a case like this all these years later, even though this case has been brewing since at least, I think, 2014. Yeah, it really is, Laura. Good evening to you and Michael. So what happens is, is that we're seeing this movement across the country where we're giving victims who were younger an opportunity now to pursue claims as an adult. In this specific jurisdiction in California, it used to be 26 or up until, uh, you know, five years thereafter in the event that you would recall the incident as it occurred. There's some repression issue in terms of you trying to forget, as any sexual assault victim would, trying to forget it. You have a psychologist to say, hey, you may be past this age, but yet you repressed it and now you remember. It was since amended to allow for it to be 40 or, you know, again, thereafter you could pursue it if it were repressed and now you remembered that it occurred. And so they've made statutes across the country uh, that are much more favorable with respect to bringing up claims that may be very stale and old, but yet provide you an opportunity to seek legal redress, notwithstanding the fact that you're an adult now. And so in this particular case, very quickly, the victim said, look, I remembered it now, although I repressed it, and she was permitted based upon that statute to bring the claim forward. So here we are from 1974 or 75, depending upon which one is the notion that she ultimately uh, decides to pursue. You mentioned that point, of course, because I believe that the accuser, after having been provided documents from the Cosby team, recalled then a different year that this allegedly took place. But, um, Smirkanish, I got to ask you, because we're talking about still a civil trial here, and I'm wondering to what extent the Supreme Court's decision in the Pennsylvania, of course, would have any bearing or the philosophy? Is there connective tissue in terms of the idea of having some kind of civil immunity in this instance for this case, if you're Bill Cosby? So the biggest difference to me or the, the biggest point, I guess, to be made is that the standard, as the two of you well know, was beyond a reasonable doubt in the criminal case. This is going to be by a preponderance of the evidence. I, I don't see any bearing of the outcome in Pennsylvania that it would have on this case. I think this this will be a fresh circumstance and it'll be very interesting to see how the passage of nearly a half a century, I mean, does that bode better for the alleged victim in this case or for Cosby in this case? I could argue that both ways. I'm also fascinated by the fact that apparently he won't be present. Is that going to be perceived as disrespectful of the jury or will they say, hey, he believes this is such a ridiculous case that he's not even going to show up 3,000 miles away from where he's now living? I got to say, um, I don't know how you'd see it, Joey, but the client's got to show up. I mean, just, uh, you got to show up. But of course, this is an interesting time we live in. But gentlemen, thank you. Look at this beautiful law firm here. Look at this wonderful thing. <laughs> Can my name please go first? I, it, it's alphabetical. Thank you so much. We'll call it Coates Jackson Smirkanish in that order. I'll we'll see you, you 12... <laughs>
Joey's like, don't try it, Laura. Thank you for biting your tongue. Anything for you. Oh, God. Well, from, from this to now the monkeypox scare. Ahead. A lot of people are understandably concerned about this new virus with a lot of unknowns. We've got the point person for the White House response this outbreak next. And it looks nasty. Ooh. Tonight, a sixth presumptive case of monkeypox in America, just announced today in Washington state. Officials say the man recently traveled to a country where other cases have been reported. Now, cases are confirmed in 15 countries. In an interview with the Associated Press, a World Health Organization advisor says sex rave parties may have contributed to the spread in Europe. But the CDC says monkeypox is not a sexually transmitted disease. So why is it spreading? And how do we avoid contracting it? Let's get some insight from the person leading the White House pandemic office responsible for coordinating the monkeypox response, Dr. Raj Punjabi. I'm glad you're here, doctor. I have to tell you, when you look at the pictures of monkeypox and you see the idea of cases being confirmed stateside, the immediate questions with people coming out of this pandemic and in the middle of it, and we're showing this picture again, is how contagious and infectious is it and could people possibly get it here? Well, thank you, Laura, for having me on. So how contagious and infectious is it? It is not as contagious as COVID. This is a disease, a virus that causes a flu-like illness, fevers, headaches, muscle aches, followed by a pretty characteristic rash. Basically think of bumps across your skin that get fluid-filled and pus-filled. Those can be painful. The disease usually lasts two to four weeks. And those who are most at risk of getting it are those who are in direct contact with those skin lesions or in contact with the respiratory droplets of someone who is uh, infected with the virus. It cannot be transmitted as far as we know in past outbreaks, as well as so far in this one, through airborne transmission uh, like COVID can. Well, do we know how it started? I mean, I know that the phrase monkeypox is an origin for lab monkeys, but it seems to have expanded to rodents and, and prairie dogs being carriers as well. What is the origins of how this would have started now? Well, you're right. This is a disease, monkeypox, that is is present in endemic, as it's called, in parts of West and Central Africa. I actually grew up in Liberia and have practiced in West Africa and have seen cases of monkeypox there. What's unusual about this outbreak, Laura, is that it's spreading in places that don't typically have infections. And so how it started is still unclear. Uh, we're getting new clues every day. Uh, currently, we have clusters of outbreaks in places like Spain and Portugal and the United Kingdom. We have a few cases, as you noted, here in the United States most of which have been travel-related or uh, related to people who've had direct contact with uh, people who've had monkeypox. So how do you treat it? I mean, is, I, is the incubation period pretty quick? I hear it's a few weeks before you might develop symptoms. How do you treat it? Is it about quarantining? Is there a, a solution, a vaccine to prevent or treat? I mean, I'm a little bit nervous. I, don't, I look at the pictures and I got to tell you, I'm not a doctor, I'm a lawyer. And I look at this and say, my God, I do not want this. I want no one to have it. So how do you cure it? Yeah, it looks really terrifying. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're doing in the pandemic office is working across 
our departments and agencies, first of all, with empathy first and foremost. Uh, people's anxieties and fears around this disease are real. Uh, the second thing we're focused on is science. And we have already worked to procure the fruits of science, if I may, uh, the vaccines that are effective against this virus. We have sufficient amounts of them, and we also have procured effective treatments. I, I'm, I'm happy to report, even with the first case in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital, our colleagues across the government have been able to get vaccines to that hospital. And just yesterday, they've already started offering the vaccines to healthcare workers who've been exposed. So that's the second part. The first part is to identify those who are infected and to isolate them and make sure that they get the care they need, Laura. Mm. The second part is to ensure we vaccinate those who've been exposed to the infected individuals. If we do that again and again, and that's our approach at the White House and across the government, then we have a better chance at ending this outbreak. So why, why is there talk about sex raves as the ideas of potential origins or the idea of it being a sexually transmitted disease? I mean, it, it strikes me as if all the things you're saying seem to run counter to that. So why is this even out there and what impact is that having? Yeah, so it's really important to clarify. Direct contact with the skin lesions is one of the easiest ways of contracting the disease. When people have sex, there is more direct contact. And so it is not a sexually transmitted disease, even though it can be transmitted uh, through sex, but it also can be transmitted just through touch. Currently, the outbreak in several countries has been reported amongst um, uh, certain demographics of the population who've had more intimate partner contact. Uh, you mentioned uh, the festival, for instance. But that is, we're early in the outbreak, and it's really about? important what demographic? Well, you know, it has been, yeah, it has been, it has been identified as people who self-identify as men who have sex with men or in, in uh, the gay community. But it's really, really important because we've seen this with other infectious diseases like HIV. Um, this is early in the outbreak. It's where we've seen uh, current clusters of, out, of, of infections, but it does not mean that this is a disease ref confined just to that community. Um, again, anyone who has direct contact with the skin lesions uh, and anyone who has had direct contact through sex with the skin lesions, again, someone who's been infected, is at risk, whether you are gay or not gay. I'm really glad that you've addressed this point because there's always a concern about a stigma being associated. I know you had lead with empathy, but the idea of the stigma can have dire consequences yeah. as well if that is presumed that to be a causal connection here. Um, when you think about that stigma, are you seeing... Well, Laura, I started, and I started my career as an HIV doctor, and I, okay. you know, I started my career as an HIV doctor. I know exactly what you mean, and that is really, really critical. Well... You've, you said it here, and we all should know now, that there, the causal connection is, is not there and that the idea of how to treat and cure, we're still in the really origins of figuring out what to do next. Dr. Raj Punjabi, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and for addressing what I hope will not be on the horizon for stigma purposes as well. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Well, you know, less than three months after Russia invaded Ukraine, the first war crimes trial is already over ending in a conviction today for this Russian soldier. While Vladimir Putin's actions seem clear, there are many questions about how this case may have been handled. And we're gonna examine them next. A life sentence in the first war crimes trial of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Badam Chishamirin pleaded guilty to shooting a 62-year-old civilian. 
That shooting happened on the fourth day of the conflict. And here we are nearly three months later. And Ukraine's chief prosecutor says the 21-year-old won't be the last Russian to stand trial for suspected war crimes. For today, more than 13,000 cases only about war crimes. And now we have first sentence. What? It's not enough. It's only beginning. Well, few know the unique aspects of this area of law better than my next guest, Robert Goldman. I want to thank you for joining me today because we, we talked about this before and what's been happening in this trial. You've been pretty outspoken about the idea of how surprising the timing of this trial is, that it's happening right now during the middle of the conflict. Or I don't know what time it is in the conflict, but at some point during the conflict. Yeah. Why is that so unique here? Because ordinarily, uh, conditions are not conducive to the gathering of evidence. When you really think about ongoing hostilities uh, and the gathering of evidence, it's, it's just not that easy. I mean, a lot of credit has to go to the Ukrainian prosecution team. And now we have international prosecutors, that is, uh, from the prosecutor's office from the International Criminal Court. Uh, who are also uh, in Ukraine gathering evidence. Uh, but that raises questions also about the wisdom of conducting trials uh, in the midst of an ongoing armed conflict, particularly one which, as it looks, is going to be rather protracted in time. Uh, one aspect I want to point out today, which I found somewhat unusual, as you mentioned, uh, he was uh, uh, indicted, tried, and convicted of a single count of a war crime of intentionally murdering, in essence, an individual. But in sentencing him, the court characterized his crime as a crime against peace, humanity, and security. And that was not what he was charged with. In essence, uh, what they're talking about is the crime of aggression which you cannot really uh, uh, charge a foot soldier with. This is a charge that should be brought against Vladimir Putin in the high command, you know, who planned and executed this war. But is there jurisdiction uh, for that well of Vladimir Putin? Is there, is there jurisdiction to do that in this court? Without, I mean, you're talking about a military tribunal as what is expected well, in a war But the point is, I understand your point. But the problem is what it makes it look like is that this kid has become the vessel in which you pour the totality of crimes, if you will, that have been committed. Uh, in my view, it should have been limited to the specific thing, and the language should have been that he was found guilty. As they could have been a sentence from as little as 10 up to life imprisonment. Now, I note that his defense lawyer today said they are going to file an appeal. He has 30 days, and he implied that if things don't go well, they're going to go to the European Court of Human Rights. Well, so, speaking of that notion, I though, said, I know, Robert, that, there have been people— yeah. I, I would, Real quickly, if I can get to this, um, we keep calling this a trial, but he's already pleaded guilty. There wasn't the sort of— um, protracted trial or a process even um, of a lengthy yeah. period of time. Do you, are you concerned about the guilty plea as well? Well, you know, I don't know. Look, all I know is probably like you, Laura, the information that is coming out 
by reliable reporting. And I, I still don't know the conditions under which he pled guilty. Uh, you know, did he have his lawyer present at the time? Uh, did he know the full implications of, of, of what he was pleading to? I have concerns that uh, from what I have seen, uh, what the defense attorney was arguing, there were other plausible arguments that certainly could have mitigated against punishment, mm. certainly life imprisonment, uh, had those been argued. Uh, so we don't See. know the full circumstance, but when you think five-day trial, basically, on something as serious as this with the guilty plea, and given yeah. that the Geneva Conventions are very categorical on this issue of no coercion, I'm not well, saying there was, well, but we, this guy's in to... a very vulnerable position. He certainly is. And we're going to talk more about this. Robert Goldman, there's this, essentially, as the chief prosecutor said, this is just the beginning. Thanks for watching. I'll be back on Wednesday. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.